Hello and welcome to the Love History Podcast, where we explore what happens when an LGBTQ plus historian and a mudlark chat to their friends about their shared love of history. I'm Marie-Louise Plum, known on socials as Old Father Thames. Hello, and I'm Mock O'Keefe, and you can find me on the socials as Gay Aristo. So in this podcast, uh, as Marie said, we talk to fellow history lovers, people working in history and some people who, in fact, are making history. So sit back, relax, make your beverage of choice. And we welcome you to the Love History podcast. And do remember to subscribe so you can hear all the episodes in the first series. So, Mock, what have you been up to, historically speaking? Oh, historically speaking, I, as you know, I am obsessed with uncovering hidden history. That's that's my passion. That's what I want to do. And I've been looking into the case of a chap called Ewan Forbes, who was born a very wealthy landowner in 1912, um, the son of a baron, but was incorrectly assigned the female gender at birth. Now, working with European doctors, he was able to live as a boy and then as a man, and he looked all set to inherit the estate and the title until a cousin challenged Ewan's right to inherit, saying that Ewan was in fact a girl. So Ewan took, uh, took I know, there was a court case, uh, Ewan won. Um, but what's interesting, mm-hmm. good for Ewan, what's interesting is that the court case, the record of that legal decision was hidden by the British authorities. And the reason that's important is because, I'm not sure you know, but for our, our listeners from abroad, in the UK, our law courts work on the law of prescience. So what has happened before when a case has been presented to a judge informs the judge on what decision they might make in a similar case in the future. This case rested on the fact that someone can declare their gender and the state must recognize a declaration of their gender. Now, by sealing up that case from the law records, the state was effectively removing that piece of legal, I guess, landmark ruling that people have the right to change their gender, go to their birth certificates and say, I was incorrectly assigned at birth this gender, I am in fact this gender. So it was deliberately hiding that history to remove the freedom and the ability of trans people to recognize who they are on their birth certificates. And I think it's just fascinating how the rights of that individual, Ewan, good for him, were protected. But as a result of his privilege and his position and the attitude of the state, the rights of others were then not protected. So that's that's what I've been up to. (laughs) Oh my goodness me. So that is the state. Quashing something because it was raised and understood and they thought, oh, hang on, let's put a stop to that. It came out in the early 2000s in the case of April Ashley, who was a a trans model. So that's fascinating. But that's what I've been up to. What have you been up to? Wow. Well, I have been learning a bit about the ancestral Thames, which did not run through London. This is relatively new for me. Exactly. So I'm not a... um, geologist pre you know pre-history kind of buff and I'm mudlarks we learn a lot about a lot of different things and we learn a lot of the time on the go now 
I did a project with a, a woman called Billy Bond, an artist, and she created some sculptures of finds, like really big life-size sculptures. I was lucky enough to go to the riverbed, the bed of the ancestral Thames, which is actually in Essex. And it's all due to the fact, so the fact it runs, the Thames runs through London now, is because there was a geological shift, an ice cap melted, this is in short, an ice cap melted in the last, uh, in, this, in this interglacial period we're in, and the river slowly changed its course and is now running through London, whereas it used to run through Hertfordshire, Essex, and it was a tributary of the ancestral Rhine. So... <laughs> There we go. It's amazing. Oh my God. When we have our one-to-one interview, which is coming up in a couple of episodes time, I'm going to ask you more about that. I had absolutely no idea. But before we get into our interview today with Alicia, and I'll let you introduce him in a minute, we've had a question sent in for you, for you. So, and if anyone else, yes, anyone else wants to ask us a question, please do email us on lovehistorypodcast at gmail.com. Now, are you ready for your question? Born ready. Okay, born ready. (laughs) Okay, this is from Debs in London. It's a fascinating question. Is metal detecting the best way to mudlark or old-fashioned topsoil scraping? What do you think? Well, okay, there's there's a long and a short answer to this. I prefer to search eyes only, which is getting to know the foreshore, um, knowing just through trial and error and putting in a lot of footwork where productive spots of the foreshore will be. Um, A lot of my friends do detect, they metal detect, and of course they are, you know, yeah, without doubt you will get a ping up a signal and you will find something with the detector you certainly have that advantage of being able to almost see through layers that I wouldn't be able to see through um however I think pros and cons I think you've got to be good with a metal detector know your machine you've got to have that technique and experience so I don't detect just because I basically don't want to carry all the stuff around with me and I've put in so many hours learning how the foreshore works that I don't then now want to put in hours learning how my machine works getting in tune with signals so I think it's personal choice um and it it kind of there are pros and cons of both so yeah I think there's room for both and I don't know which one I could say is the best I, I, I mean I have to say I'm not a mudlark and we'll talk more about about uh, mudlarks I I like when I've been out with you observing, obviously I don't have a permit to mudlark, but um, there's something almost like serendipity around around the topsoil scraping, whereas it feels a little bit easy, maybe a bit cheating to have a metal detector. Would you dare go that far or would your community stone you? No, <laughs> there are people in the mudlarking community who are dead against metal detecting. I think there's room for everyone, honestly. And I think there are pros and cons. I think some people do think, oh, well, that's going to be easy for you because you can find actually there's a lot of metal on the foreshore. So it is limiting detectorists to where they can look. There's a lot of iron and modern and nuts and bolts and, you know, things from construction or shipbreaking or whatever that detectorists just can't use those spaces because their machine would be going beeping all the time. So um, I do understand why people think, oh, it's a direct route into, you know, a metal find, perhaps of uh, some consequence but it's you know it's a it's it's a one and the other and serendipitous finds yes sometimes 
some of my best finds actually who've just washed up on a on a wave and land literally landed at my feet so you know there's a, it's a bit a bit of both but enough about us we have or enough about me in this instance we have a very exciting show for you today and we sat down with Alessio Kekoni who is a mudlark and paleontologist now you can find him at london underscore madlark on the socials and yeah he's been a mudlark for four years his background is in micro paleontology which is super interesting something i know nothing about and um, i was the first person to meet him on the foreshore and so we've formed this friendship and he has an amazing cache of finds and a really huge social media following so let's have a listen to our interview and then we'll come back and chat about what we've learned Lovely. That's just fabulous. Let's hear from Alessio. Welcome, Alessio. Great to have you here. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. So you, like me, are a mudlark. And um, for those that don't know, that is we spend our time foraging the foreshore of the River Thames at low tide to try to find items of historical significance, importance, or also sometimes just weird stuff mystery stuff <laughs> indeed indeed so i now i've got i met you this is right isn't it i was was i the first person to meet you on the foreshore you were uh, you were the first person i've interacted with and i uh, noticed you because you were on your knees and <laughs> you were meticulously searching an area where i had just searched and i found nothing and you were collecting things so uh, I thought, I am clearly missing out on something. <laughs> so I approached you and said, what the, sorry, what are you looking for? And you show me pins, handmade pins, you know, between 14th and 18th century. And I, I, I was at the time, I was probably my fourth um, walk on the foreshore. So I was just looking for clay pipes, pottery, like large items. And you opened me. The Pandora's box of the tiny objects I that you remember, can find. Yeah. So this was lockdown, wasn't it? Two, two, three years. Was it three years ago? Almost four. Almost, yes. My goodness me. Anyway, never mind. Almost four. <laughs> the time goes. And I remember you saying to me, "What? What are you? Do is there a name for what you're doing? Did you say that? Was that what it is? Or is uh, I'm not sure if I said. It, is there a name? I probably. I'm not sure if at the time I knew. I, I could have asked that because I discovered mudlarking during lockdown. I live near the river. And yeah. when we were uh, asked only to walk for short, um, you know, periods yeah, of time uh, to avoid, uh, uh, you know, the pandemic, I would mm -hmm. just go down the steps of the foreshore and have a little walk. And that's when I first found a pipe and I thought, oh, that looks like something. That's incredible. So, so it was the pandemic that sort of opened it up to you 100 percent. you know i've always been interested in collecting uh, uh, old items either fossils or rocks or art artifacts but i never realized that the river thames could um you know i could do the yeah. same there they call it the longest one of the longest archaeological sites in the world so so can i just quickly ask do you think that mudlarking 
increased in popularity as a result of the, of the pandemic? Did you see more people sort of scuttering about on the foreshore? Absolutely, it did. And I, I believe um, people like me um, used to uh, think of London as a place for entertainment and musicals and theatres and museums. And you never think that, uh, you know, when we wanted to um, have a, a, some time off the busy city, we would go to the south coast, maybe looking for fossils or to the countryside for a hike. The river mm -hmm. became for many of us the um, safe oasis, the quiet place within the city. And although has always been this safe place, nobody really knew about it of just very few people. Yeah, it's it really is that, isn't it? It is this strange zone, this sort of channel. This I always refer to it as an artery, London's artery, or you know, beating heart. Or and it when when the water is out and it raises raises by seven meters twice a day, like the max is seven meters twice a day, and uh, with the tides. And when the water is out, it is a different London, isn't it? It's a step it back time. It's Odd. It's a combination of things. I uh, sounds um, are, are one of these things that could completely change the uh, your feelings, your perception of the environment where you are. And strangely, the walls and the embankment uh, around the river create a sound barrier for noise, for traffic, mm. for people chatting, and all you hear are waves. Uh, the pebbles you walk on there's lots of birds uh, sometimes you see a seal and you have you know the ferries and the boats that go up and down and if you close your eyes and you know you take somebody uh you know you close their eyes and say where, where are you you think you are in the seaside you hear the waves uh, coming and it's a really calming and peaceful uh place of this spot in the city uh we which again before lockdown although i've been living here for 14 years Mm, I wow. had no idea it existed. I guess some people don't realise, I mean, they see the tide go up and down, but maybe it doesn't register. That's a tidal river. Maybe they don't, you know, it's not obvious, is it, that you can go down there? I think tourists, perhaps, I don't know if this is definite, but maybe they get more out of it because you see a lot of tourists down there. As in they, they see it's like, oh, let's go down to the beach there. Maybe they're looking for stuff to do so it will pop up, you know, get down to the foreshore. Um you you so since you started you have amassed a huge following on instagram and you know social media and it's incredible um how how do you feel about that what do you i mean um my approach to social media it's um it's really just for fun only you know i yeah. i haven't written any book yet or you know i for me it's just a way to share my passion for what we find and also has been a way for me to meet so many interesting people like you that are knowledgeable in some aspects of the discipline. And therefore, mm -hmm. we it becomes almost like an open university where you can exchange information, <laughs> you exchange ideas. Oh, I found this one. Does anybody know what it is? Which happens? Oh, some crazy idea came out. Like the time I found this, uh, it was a it was a, a rubber, um, sorry, a leather uh, ring with mm -hmm. nails all around it. And it, it looks like something dodgy. It was probably 10 centimeters <laughs> in diameter. And some people said, I know what it is. It's a chastity belt. Right, and, exactly. and there was all this idea. So we tried not to fit it in, but we tried to imagine how it would work. And eventually yeah. it came out, it was something used um, you know, in, in a, for boats 
to uh, for the rowing and to I make can it see, the... I can see that Mark is really cringing. It was absolutely and you know when you just brainstorm uh, and all yeah. you know and it's such a, <laughs> such a fun way of learning and doing research. Are you saying it was a rollock? Uh, like a, a boat to put it was. the in and it was uh, yeah and i know another another wonderful word there a rollock it was mudlarking with you is quite an experience suddenly you're one place i turn around say alessia then you're like a mile away you're just you know all over the like quick 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 and you always always find something i'm sure always find something good and your large follower um, number is very well deserved because there's this thing, right, with mudlarking. People talk about getting your eye in. So when you start to make sense of the foreshore, you start to see things that might not have leapt out of you at first, um, you know, the first few times you go down there, you kind of assimilate your eyes and your vision with what the foreshore is presenting. Once you get your eye in, that's great because you'll start spotting things. If you have the other thing as well that a mudlark needs, luck, as well as getting your eye in, because sometimes you can be in the right place at the right time and an amazing find will wash in on a tide. It will just bump and then it's at your feet. I'm pretty convinced you've got the eye, you've got the luck, you've got the magic combo. What do you think about that? Well, I'd say that I, I do think I have the eye for some items. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that that's very peculiar. If you scroll through different Mudlark uh, Instagram accounts or social media accounts, you will see that each of them has a preference. And I believe it's a mix of, yes, actual preference, but also just your eye is tuned to it, look for it. Some people yeah. are coins, some people are pottery, uh, you know, and, and in my case is bone and leather. And it's a mix of, yeah. you know, again, passion for it, but also my eyes just spot the little piece of leather that is popping out uh, the sand. About luck, I would argue with you that <laughs> I have it at times, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, it comes and goes. And I try all sorts of rituals to mm -hmm. uh, try to get luck back when I go for, a, you know, one dry month and I get so frustrated and it's like, okay, let's try all sorts of magic. Tell us, what, what, are, what are the rituals? I'm interested in this, yeah. So the rituals are, uh, listen, listen. The first one is that you uh, invoke Saint Anthony, which is the same patron of the lost objects. Yes. I do it in Italian, you know, I am a devoted, uh, come from a devoted Catholic country. So yes. I start invoking him and saying, well, if you could do me the favor, you don't ask for I want. Mm -hmm. It works for losing iPhones and finding iPhones too. I was raised by a Catholic Irish mother and we always prayed to St. Anthony when we lost her car keys. I now do it when I lose my iPhone and I'm a, I'm a Protestant for goodness sake. <laughs> still works. <laughs> he still listens. <laughs> well, I tell you another secret that actually yeah. works incredibly. When <laughs> you can find a parking spot is uh -huh. St. Pancras. St. Pancras is the patron of space. <laughs> <laughs> and you ask for St. Pancras, make me find some space. And I promise you, within 30 seconds, you find a parking spot. This is almost, almost an infallible um, wow. way of yeah. parking. <laughs> the wow. second is... Yeah. Then the second, um, like, magic ritual is that if I, end, if I reach the end of a lark and I have not found much, I spend the last half an hour collecting plastic. 
and I say, you know what? I accept that today nothing is happening. I am, you know, freeing the river from pollution. I would like mm -hmm. next time to find something interesting. And oh. the third thing I do is I gift something that is special to me to another mudlark rather than you know we gift each other you know like i don't collect pins would you like them we but do. sometimes i on purpose if i have a double of something really special uh, i gift it to somebody and it happened for example that i found a second pinner's bone which is Whoa. a bone that was used between 600 and four and 200 years ago one of my most treasured finds it's incredible aren't it's they an you amazing know find, yeah it's a piece of bone that has been sharpened and then you see marks of these pins that repeatedly someone was pushing against the bone, right? It's so tactile, it's so special. I found a second one during one night lark. There was a friend near me and she never found one and said, you know what, this is special, I'm giving it to you. And the next day I found the pilgrim badge complete. Amazing, that is incredible, isn't it? I mean, I like, I love these rituals you have because they are all, uh, you know, they're not, um, there's a thing that I say about the river and that is don't be needy don't be greedy so if you're down there having a really dry spell like you you know you just got to accept it you're not nothing's doing and you know maybe the river will find its way next time to give you something lovely but you can't push it because the more you search the less you'll find I think that you can carry over into all walks of life with relationships with whatever if you are pushing and trying too hard it's not going to work. Now, you just mentioned a pilgrim badge. I know many of your finds, which are fantastic. And um, please, listeners, do go and check out Alessio's Instagram because there are some amazing finds on there. I must ask you then about your background. So you're here, you're mudlarking, you've lived in uh, Britain for 14 years. You trained as a paleontologist, is that right? <laughs> It, it's correct. Well, I'm micro paleontologist, which just yeah. doesn't mean I'm little, although I'm not <laughs> at all. <laughs> but it means that I focus on microfossils, meaning that oh. you can um, see under a microscope if you want to identify them. Oh my goodness! Um, so, I, so to the naked eye, we wouldn't know. You would see that. probably sand, little sand grains, and then oh, once you put them under a microscope, you can see them. Uh, it's a discipline that uh, has kind of been disappearing. Uh, because paleontology in general now has turned into the study of macro fossils, so dinosaurs, which was the original drive for me to decide to, you know, so be a paleontologist. That's what, that's what I was going to ask. I think of Mary Anning when I think of fossils, mm -hmm. stones. Uh, who else? No, I think of Ross from Friends because I'm far more lowbrow than you. Exactly. Ross from Friends is the king of paleontology. Sorry, everybody else. <laughs> but yeah, of course. So dinosaurs, fossils, I think of, you know, adventure, um, discovery, anthropology, archaeology. Is that what the thrust was? You were. It was. It was. A, I mean, it, my, my career and my passions are, are the example that you keep discovering what you're passionate about so mm -hmm. as a child i was passionate about stars i knew everything about constellations i went in secondary school i went working on summers to buy myself a telescope i wanted to be an astrophysicist oh, yeah. i oh. applied to be an astrophysicist and the two weeks before university started a friend of mine she was a geologist she said would mm -hmm. you like to come and attend a, a lecture in paleontology i i just happened to have to go this just went i was waiting for my courses to start I attended one lecture. I went home and I told my mom, mom, I am 
uh, not doing uh, physics. I'm actually doing paleontology. Wow. <laughs> it just clicked. And for the first time, I realized that uh, something that happened to be just a dream and a passion could be a job and could be something for life. That's how it all started. It was it was something quite unexpected. And I spent most of my you know adulthood working on the subject. But micropaleontology per se, it's quite an interesting discipline because you think it's just some nerds that look at tiny little things. However, th the reason why I get so fascinated about it is that uh, if you think about micropaleontology, think about plankton, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. part of what we used to study. They are really susceptible to variation in temperature, in water salinity, in currents. So by studying these little animals and how they change through the layers of rocks, you can understand how the climate changed in time. And they are really susceptible. So they're like this little, um, you know, evidence that you have to understand fluctuations of the sea level, when there was a, a big volcanic eruption. Uh, they recorded the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. And that's oh how it was discovered. <laughs> this is mind-blowing stuff, overwhelmingly so for me. I mean, does your, that paleontology, micropaleontology background, does it, merge in with mud I mean does it inform or help with mudlarking or I think what it does is uh, it's very useful to understand the principle of stratigraphy meaning whatever it's uh, deeper uh, you know right. it, it should be older in the river it works up to a certain point because the river keeps mixing yeah. but you you for example can see uh, evidence of what is actually in situ for example in paleontology there is a term which is um, autochthonous, right, which we use also in common life. But when you have an autochthonous assemblage of fossils, it means that they have never been moved since when they died. Oh, and, and in the river, very often, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the old mud, you find bivalves like clams that are still attached to each other and they are like vertically positioned, like at the moment when they died. For them to be found in that position, it means they have never been moved from that position. So you know that that piece of mud on the foreshore, it's actually has never been touched up to that point. So if you find a button there, you could tell that that button is in situ and has oh, never been moved around. So, so it's not you... diagnostic criteria to know timelines and where things are and where they've been. Okay. Wow. So it does inform. It does. <laughs> That's incredible. So do you think you have an extra, you've got an extra weapon in your mudlarking armory or an extra bit of info? I think I got an extra bit of info and it's like, it's like a little bit of detective work, right? Uh, most of us now that are familiar with the river uh, can see that there has been a murder and and can see maybe where the wounds are um the extra level would be can you find the fingerprints and can you find the hair that has been lost and that all adds to the story of this uh, wonderful uh, crime scene you're trying to solve and understand yeah very good analogy you're like tired short detectives aren't you i love that on that note um, about the detective work, you know, leather, I was mentioning leather is one of my passions. And um, I, I also really like um, reading about Sherlock Holmes. And I remember in one episode that he could tell from the way someone was walking, uh, you know, what job he was doing and so on. So it happened to me to that I found a little child shoe, Victorian, so not too old, 100, 150 years old. And I managed to fully restore it. And I realized, for example, 
example that the inner part of the soul is much more eroded than the external part that the soul is quite tiny but the whole shoe has been stretched to death by a much larger feet that the toe has been completely eroded by just use and from that i started investigating and reading about it and for example victorian children were often malnourished and therefore they would have rickets and that would cause your legs you know to be crooked and therefore to use one side of the shoe more than another uh, you know they most of them were quite poor so that's why they probably the shoe was overstretched it was a child that couldn't afford a bigger shoe and they kept wearing the same shoe until as, as they kept growing and stretched the shoe and and again, that's when they again another case of detective work coming out of our passion, right? You find a little evidence of somebody, and then you get to learn more about the person. Maybe not the name, but how poor they were, what kind of life they were living. And I yeah, find this and, yeah. so fascinating. I mean, particularly with that shoe which I've held, um, you know, you've got a connection directly to the person who was wearing it, their life, what they were doing. There is a real sentimental thrust about that as well, um, especially when you find those little clues that maybe they did were suffering from some kind of malnourishment or, you know, you can. Yeah, they are amazing uh, finds, that kind of find. Got another thing to ask you about, moving slightly, well, completely off paleontology and micropaleontology. You are living part-time in London and part-time in Suffolk. Correct. In Suffolk, you live in a period property. Is it a, what, a 16th, 17th century? We, that's still under discussion. We, oh. uh, my partner uh, moved to the countryside and he wanted a period property and he's obsessed with beams, uh, exposed beams. So we found this property listed as Tudor. So we're talking about 16th century. We moved in and uh, we started getting to know the neighbors and uh, one neighbor opposite from us, um, Richard, uh, knew about my passion for history. And he called me one day saying, can you come and... See, because I'm renovating my house, I've moved a beam of a window and I found some objects hidden under the window. So I run there and I found um, all put together. There were uh, pins, there were some buttons, there were a couple of coins and they were really placed one next to each other as if it was a little ritual. They were all Georgian in age, and we realized it was, you know, an apotropaic cache. So uh, a set of objects that are hidden or put somewhere to protect against the evil spirit. He told me that he found a shoe hidden in his uh, um, chimney, and he showed it to me again. It's, a, it's a, a Georgian shoe. He found half piece of a jacket, Georgian because of the button. So the family that lived there around, you know, the end of the 18th century were clearly very... Uh, susceptible to evil spirits and they were doing all they could to protect the house i came home straight away and i said we must have something in the house as well though the house has been renovated a bit so we weren't sure i started cooking my partner uh, gets a torch and we look through the cracks of the fireplace beam where we did identify before some witch marks and yeah. these witch marks are these circles and burn marks that you know, are very common in East Anglia. We have them in Wales as well. I live in a, an Elizabethan house and we have witch marks above our, what we call the, in the Great Hall, we have a fireplace that has all the witches scratchings. It's fascinating to keep the, the evil spirits from coming down the chimney. 
Indeed. Uh, they were usually placed, as you say, either in chimneys, uh, along the doors, to avoid the spirits to come in. And what was um, So we, he started looking and he found one pin, and then another pin, and then a button, and he called me. And, and I saw just tiny, shiny object, and I said, that's a coin, that's a hundred coin. So we took some tweezers and extracted it, and I filmed the moment of the extraction. It's on Instagram, because I thought this must be special. And it's... Um, Henry and Edward the Fourth Silver Groat from 1471 to 1483. There, very cool. Has been hidden in there for so long. And that is silver, hammered coin. It's silver. It's almost complete. Yeah. Uh, and clearly tells us that the house could be, uh, you know, pre-Tudor. Now these coins were in circulation also. Uh, you know, later on. So it could be a Tudor house, but it really tells you a lot about the history. And then since then, we talked to our neighbors about it. Another neighbor was doing their floor in the main uh, room and they found a piece of pottery that I sent to an expert, Richard Henry, and he dated yeah. it as 1250, 1350. Wow. It makes you feel so humble to live in a house where so many people lived so many fears and passions and uh, spells have been casted. I, I, I just, it just sends you down a, a beautiful journey. Yeah, your house is a silent witness, isn't it, for all these families and lives and loves and deaths and, you know, whatever occasions and happiness and sadness. It's just, and do you feel it when you're, when you're there? Or, I mean, does that sound a bit no, well, I, I, I think what you feel is a, a sense of um, is a sense of continuity. You feel part of something, right? You uh, use a fireplace that has been, uh, you know, you can see that there is an area where somebody was, say, pushing more or sitting more or working more. You know, work surfaces, areas where people stepped more than other areas. It makes you feel you like when you enter a church, right? You're, and you see that, you know, some of the stones are levigated. stones, yeah. And you feel like I'm not the first, I won't be the last. And it puts you into a perspective that also your house, it will be someone else's house. So we are really... Uh, you know, the way we treated, for example, this cash is that we put it back. Also, mm -hmm. because at the moment we found it, five minutes later, this the chair I was using cracked. I fell. I bumped into a friend that bumped his head on a, on a wall. And we just said, you know, let's put everything back. But we yeah. also then hid one modern coin into one of the cracks because we thought, you know, let let be part of history. And so let added to it. Yeah. And let be part of this flow of lives that are sharing this place yeah. gosh i love that story it's very mr james kind of ghost story that that you you know you leave the things where you find them and you don't it's a warning to the curious isn't it and thank you so much for coming in today unfortunately we've run oh. out of time um it's been fascinating as always <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This this has been an, a wonderful chat and sharing. It's uh, it's part of what makes our hobbies and our interests uh, come alive. Uh, exactly. So this is this has been a great occasion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, that was fascinating. Thank you for setting that up. Very welcome. He is a brilliant guest and so interesting. So I'm glad he agreed to come on. Yeah, absolutely. What did you learn from your conversation today? I think the overarching thing for me was chance, all this chance of finding on the foreshore, the chance of Alessio wanted to be an astrophysicist, but then he t he did this one lecture in paleontology. 
and his life was, you know, the direction of his life was changed. So chance for me and his rituals. I loved those. They were great. How yeah. about you? What did you... What Actually, one of, I learned two things. One links into what you said about, about chance and about change. Actually, so I've got a great quote. I wrote it down. Keep discovering what you are passionate about. And I love that, especially, you know, our listeners here, loving history, discovering what they're passionate about. Keep going. I love that. I also learned some new vocab. I love the idea of a night lark. And I loved about going on a lark. <laughs> now you've got the very tab. We'd love to hear from our dear listeners what you learnt today or what you thought of our episode. So do get in touch. You can email us on lovehistorypodcast at gmail.com. And check us out next week when we've got another fantastic special guest for you. We'll have lots more interesting history for you to love on Love History. <laughs>